0: everybody. Welcome to the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. Our guest today is Mr. Will Luera. Will is the Director of Improvisation at the Florida Studio Theater down in Sarasota, Florida. He is the Artistic Director of Improv Asylum in both Boston and New York City. He's the Director of Big Bang Improv. And he serves as the Artistic Director Emeritus of Improv Boston, where he was the acting director artistic director for a number of years and made his mark on the boston improv and comedy scene it was great to sit down with will old friend of centralia we talk about what it takes to build a good ensemble and our thoughts on improv in general you know the kind of stuff we talk about here on the centralia improvisational podcast so sit back relax and enjoy my conversation with mr will luera following podcast is in no way related to centralia pennsylvania and now direct from new york city an island off the coast of america it's the centralia improvisational
1: podcast
0: so how the hell are you do you feel like you're coming to the end of the pan pan
2: um, I feel like I feel like it I mean, you know, time and pando pandemic has been a little different down here in Florida um, yeah, but in our little bubble, the bubble that I operate in, it does feel like we're coming to the end of it. I still am you know I was doing trying to do the math yesterday of how many weekly classes I'm teaching, and I think it's at twelve what. And, yeah, 12 weekly classes. 7 are v- virtual and 5 are in person. So, it's not totally back to normal yet. But yes.
0: Wait, normally you do more than 12 classes?
2: Uh yeah, I no, no no no, no, that's the thing though. Because of this whole thing, I'm busier now than I used to be.
0: Right. 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 I think that's for some people that um has been a real change that you're now able to teach to the world without having to yeah. be, you know, leave home. That yeah. was amazing.
2: Yeah. That, that, that has been something. And even for like my classes that are based out of my current home theater here in Sarasota, the fact that we have students from everywhere has made it possible for some of these classes to fill up and run them when, you know, it's, Maybe I think if we were just limited
0: to in-person Florida people, they might not have run. Right, right. That's amazing. That's great. Um, So before the whole dem-dem, you were about to relocate between Boston and New York, and you were going to run the asylum.
2: That is correct. That was the plan. We were getting ready to uh, make the big move. The weekend that everything went on lockdown was the weekend we were going to fly up to Rhode Island to check stuff out. We had a really nice Airbnb, a couple of them actually, uh, that we were going to go to, visit some towns, and uh, and everything shut down.
0: It's a real convenient way for you to make a worldwide pandemic all about you.
2: It made everything just a lot easier. I just needed everything to calm (laughs) down for a little bit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's just the timing is crazy. You're about to like, uproot your family change your whole life and now is that going to happen is it still going to happen is it still on the table is like just everything been put on hold
2: uh you know uh it's a little bit of all of that it's still on the table but it might look a little different uh we our family lost the enthusiasm to move Mm. Uh, and when i say our family like my Wife and kids, all you know, they lost the enthusiasm, and they were all for it. Uh But then, it was nice. I, I'll say one thing for 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 Florida during this whole thing, it was nice to be able to be outside every day, mm-hmm. even when there was nothing to do. Yeah, just to be able to be outside in December, January, February, right? And yeah. that kind of seeing the the you know the difficulties that a lot of people had up north made it um made my family sort of be like okay i don't know if we want to honestly it's been like what if this happens again right uh and so um they've lost the enthusiasm to move that being said i have not lost the enthusiasm for the job right and so i am now chatting with folks up there like you know, we've learned a lot during this last year, and one of them is that you don't necessarily need to be in the same office all the time. Right. So, is is it possible? And I don't know if you remember the details of this, but uh, the details of my moving. But one of the details was that I was planning to move to Rhode Island so that I wasn't in either one of the cities that was I was going to work out of, right? Boston or New York. I wanted. I was already kind of planning to be distant and just come in as needed. But now there's the possibility of that distant instead of being an Amtrak train. It's maybe a quick JetBlue flight. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's me dropping in, dropping both of our sponsors in. Is it, you like that, how I work that in? Mm-hmm. Am, mm-hmm. Amtrak and JetBlue? Yep.
0: yep. <laughs> this podcast brought to you by Amtrak and JetBlue. <laughs> if you want to go from one place to another, fly or take a train. Amtrak and JetBlue.
2: Thank you. And so, yeah, that was that was nice. So, yeah, that was uh, now it's kind of like, hey, you know what? Maybe it's uh, maybe now instead of a train ride, it's a quick flight and we could still do the same thing. So that that's kind of where the discussions are right now.
1: Yeah, uh,
0: that's amazing that you'd be able to help out and not have to be there. I I think, you know, being the head of a theater, running a theater, being an artistic director somewhere has got to be a, a time consuming job. Because you want to see all the shows, right? You want to you want to be able to support everybody. Um, and that's just really time-consuming, you know, especially if a theater has shows, you know, five, six shows a night. On weekends, you're doing midnight shows. It's just long hours. And uh, you've got to be there for a lot of people.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I do know that. And, I mean, that was uh, one of the tough things when I was in, when I was running Improv Boston, is that we got to a point where... It was twenty two to twenty five shows a week, mm. and it's just not possible to see everything, right? And you start to not like the job, right? And so, yeah, I and, and uh, I don't, I don't want to get to that point with anywhere that I work,
0: right? I mean, I got that way with, with teaching, loving being in the classroom from seven to ten, hating. The time around it when I had to get there and I had to stop, you know, whatever I was doing, probably watching Netflix. You
2: know, the, one of the other things on the table is that might not even be a full time thing as much as it's uh, maybe I'm contracting and, you know, I'm going up to direct shows and it's not 40 hours a week. Maybe it's 20 hours a week mm-hmm. on top of the work that I'm doing down here. And, right. and that's okay.
0: Yeah. Maybe that works. Yeah. Um, I, I asked you in, in private before. How you got to be the guy that you are because you're you're a rare animal, and I just want to get it on the record. you're able to like run a business and make improv a business and run a theater you're you're like an administrator, but you're also a very talented performer director teacher, which I find very unusual that you excel in so many different areas. How did that happen? <laughs> uh you know I think part of it is.
2: I I look back at when I think many of us. I'm like a. I feel like you and I are part of the same generation, but maybe I'm a little bit a couple of years uh, behind you. you yeah, know, I you I still on.
0: see you as a young kid. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think you, you got you got a few years, on, just a few years on me. But yeah. like I I feel like uh, when I was so part of it is like who I am as a as a person. Uh, And then also what was available to me at the time Mm -hmm. and who I am as a person is I've always tended to be the person that like if something if I really want to do something and no one else is doing it, then I'm just going to go ahead and do it for myself. Mm. And whether that's like a club in high school or uh, or in college, like a a class that I, I want or a class that I wanted to take, like an elective class uh, you know, then if no one else is doing it, then I'm going to pursue it as much as I can and, and hopefully get something.
0: I think that's a generational thing. You know, it's a latchkey kid, Generation X. You're on your own, DIY. Mm, I like this. I think you're absolutely right, yeah. Not to say the other generations don't also have a bunch of self-starters, but I, I do I identify with that, being of that age very much. We're on our own.
2: Yeah, and I think maybe for our generation, it was probably a disproportionate amount, right, compared yeah. to to others. You're, I think you're absolutely right, and uh, and so I found myself I found myself often in that situation where, okay, uh, no one else is doing it, so go ahead and do it for you, for yourself. And so I wanted to do certain things. Once I got to Improv Boston as a part of the main stage performer, this was like in 1997. I wanted to do long form, but nobody was doing long form in Boston. So I started to pursue it on my own, not teach it on my own. I just started to look for for other people who could
0: teach it to me. How did you first encounter long form?
2: So this was uh, early, this was, uh, I'll never forget. It was like early internet. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm looking, I remember back, uh, I mean, it's pre-Google. So I'm talking like Lycos, Alta Vista days, right? Mm-hmm. Yahoo. Mm-hmm. and. I'm I'm starting up doing inter- I'm starting up doing uh improv, and I'm falling in love with it like everybody else. I'm like in my first year I'm doing short form I'm doing this that I'm like oh this is this is awesome I want to do more, and I in my brain uh, started to like think about the idea of like ooh wouldn't it be cool to uh, improvise a play mm. without knowing what short form or long form was and so I just started to do some early Alta Vista Lycos searching. Uh, and I started to see these things that were like, oh, wow, this is, uh, there are people doing this. And not only that, they're doing it in my old hometown of Chicago. Right. And how do I, how do I tap into that? So I started to email people and it was back before anyone had personal emails. like so I had my, my work email. So I'm, I'm emailing people for my work email being like, Hey, I saw this on, uh, I saw this on, uh, a bulletin board that you posted on. Right. Like your GeoCities account or whatever it was back then. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And you posted about this thing that you're working on. I want to know how to do it. And I'll never forget uh, a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine now, but back then a total stranger, Dan Goldstein, who was in Chicago. He was at University of Chicago. He was part of the improv scene at that time there, but kind of like more like more in the fringe. But he was working on a modified Herald that he was calling sitcom. So he was doing Mm. an improvised sitcom. And so, but he was running, he was learning, he was taking classes like at IO, but doing this improvised sitcom out of University of Chicago. And he's one of the people I emailed and he was like, hey, Will, I'm going to be in Boston working at Harvard for a year. Uh, He's like, in one year, I'm going to be doing this, like like fall of 1998 or whatever. I'm going to be in Boston. I'll email you when I'm there. So a year passes by, and I suddenly get this email out of nowhere in my work email. Thankfully, I still worked there. And he uh, he's like, hey, Will, this is Dan. I'm in town. You want to meet up? So we met up. We started this thing called Sitcom, and that's kind of what introduced uh, Longform to Boston. And it mm. gave me the nudge I needed. And then there were several steps after that that I'm like, you know what? I want to do this all the time. Oh, Improv Boston doesn't want to do this all the time. I'm going to go ahead and open my, I'm going to go rent out a theater so I could do this three nights a week. Yeah. Right. And then I'm like, wait, we don't, we could do more than this. I want to learn more. So then we started to hire, uh, we started to hire uh, teachers out of New York. And that's actually when you and I crossed paths because mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we were like hungry for information. And one of the groups that came across, uh you know my my uh my path was this uh, burn manhattan and so there there we went and i'll never forget like that was the first dent in my path in a good way it was like this upward move was uh, that workshop with burn manhattan which you were a part of
0: that was a great workshop um it's funny because uh you uh left an impression for sure um partially because you had come from out of town And we were like serving locals, like a lot of actors, comedians. And then sort of the bell went off of like, oh, this is spreading, you know, long form, the new improv uh, was spreading to other places. And you just had a lot of enthusiasm Um, Mm -hmm. and just being willing to travel to another city to take a workshop for us. We're like, who are we? Why are they coming to us? Do we have anything of value? And we're like, oh, obviously we do because people are coming here for it. So, and I wish,
2: I wish I remember. I wish I could like attribute it to someone. Like, I, I want. I, I'm trying to remember who that person was that was like, you have to go check out Burn Manhattan.
0: Well, it's a matter of timing, and that there weren't many people doing long form outside of Chicago at that point. You know, so we were one of two, two or three groups, literally. That we're doing this kind of work on the East coast. So it's right, right place, right time. Isn't that crazy?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember like, yeah, emailing, I think it was Jay Roderick who who was my point of contact. Mm -hmm. And uh, then it just started from then. Then that's when we came back and we were like, okay, we now, you know, we take this workshop with Vernon Hatton. We got this information from Dan Goldstein. Uh, Let's, let's start to push. And we started to move into other formats and, I mean, I ended up renting a theater out for a year. Mm. Uh and f- to this day, I mean it's now been twenty two years after that, twenty-three years. I mean, I-, I probably just finished recovering financially from that investment. <laughs> <laughs> I-, I mean yeah, because for yeah. a year my yeah. paycheck my paycheck was going straight from my IT job right to keeping this theater open. Mm. And that's all. And I was just keeping the space open so that we could all just do long form to one or two people a night mm-hmm. and teach workshops to four or five people and just keep the dream going. And we did that for a whole year. But I look back and I'm like, that, that is, that's what kickstarted the long form scene in Boston. Because now seeing a short form show is rare there. Yeah. Everything is long form.
0: Yeah. That's wild to me. I... Always assumed there would be two flavors, you know, one, the sort of popular flavor, which is short form, which is more analog- analogous to comedy, right? From, from the audience's perspective. And then there would be long form, which would be more boutique, artisanal. I had no <laughs> sense that it would totally flip. N- not yeah. to say that, you know, I guess people just realized improv is funny. Regardless right. of what shape it takes,
2: and and it's and you're right, man. Like it's all timing because at that time, like we all benefited as much as people like try to crap on short form. We all benefited from the popularity of Who's Lion. Oh yeah, right? I mean the the curiosity that emerged from from that was just intense. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I mean I'll never forget we went from and I'm talking about Improv Boston, summer of 1997 like probably the, uh, so, I'm sorry, summer of 1998, probably the most uh, formative, one of the most formative periods of my improv career. We went from canceling three out of four shows a weekend to selling everything out constantly. Wow. I mean, and it's just all
0: because of who's alive. Well, Boston, Boston's also a comedy town. It's you know home to a lot of comedy places like stand up comedy. Um. What's the theater scene like? The theater scene i i, I like I, I like the
2: Boston theater scene. Uh, it's very um well I, I okay, I like it, but it is complicated. There, there is a um there is a complex being so close to to new York mm-hmm. right and uh, and and, lose... and it's,
0: it's traditionally one of the out of town tryout cities on the way to New York. so a exactly The sh- show would run in Boston, where they'd be in Philadelphia or Washington. Um or New Haven, Connecticut, on their way to Broadway, it was not a place where a show sat for a very long time.
2: that's right, yeah, and I think that was part of what gave us that that chip right on our shoulder was that that nothing stayed, and your actors didn't stay the shows didn't stay, ideas didn't stay, mm-hmm. and so uh so the, it, because of that, like it was hard to really um like I found it because I worked a lot in the scripted in scripted theater as well Mm
1: -hmm.
2: uh that I found just like the comedians like if you were still there in Boston it's because you made a choice Mm -hmm. it's like I have made a choice to commit myself to this uh to this community and this scene right and uh because I do I also think like the ball and I I feel like the reason why the Boston scene is a good uh a good tryout city for any show is that I think Boston audiences can be tough. And I do think mm. it's one of these things where like, I mean, if you could, if you could win over a Boston audience, uh, you know, they, then, then you're ready. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, they, they, uh, Bostonians, uh, you know, can be, and I know we could say the same, maybe about, about New Yorkers as well, but like, you know, Bo- Bostonians can be opinionated mm-hmm. and they could be vocally opinionated. And so, um, and, but, but it's a great way to refine your chops as a, whether it's as a scripted actor, a standup comic, or, uh, or an improviser.
0: When you started doing the long form stuff, did you find that the audiences would be the people that would go to theater, or were they a comedy audience, or was it a combination, or did you have to just make your whole, you know, make your audience yourself? Uh, we were,
2: we were probably feeding more on the curious stand-up comedy audience. Mm.
1: Uh,
2: there was like this, just a very curious, especially with long form. I mean it was definitely like uh you know like a sideshow freak show type of thing. It's like, "Oh, what is <laughs> what is this little thing that's happening?" <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and we had to we had to you know, it's like, "Oh, let's dazzle them with the short form and then get them drunk enough to stay for the long form." Right type of thing.
0: What about your uh students and performers? Who who are these people? I mean Boston, it's not a big college town. So I imagine <laughs> uh <laughs> I imagine there's not a lot of young people around. Who who was coming yeah. to take the classes?
2: Uh, so uh, we did have a lot of, especially in the beginning, and this, this goes back to commenting on the theater community of Boston. We had a lot of actors mm-hmm. uh, we, and then a, a lot of stand-up comics that were just trying to refine. a lot of, And I think this is every community everywhere. is like stand-up comics that are trying to refine their crowd work, trying to refine their... Uh, Their improv skills on stage. Mm -hmm. He had a lot, a lot of that, and it wasn't until later that the college uh, systems really started to feed
1: Mm. into
2: our, uh, into our, into our program. Mm -hmm. And that was I had to kind of make a shift. I had to shift the way we were operating the theater in order for that to happen. But in the beginning, it was a lot of actors, a lot of hobbyists. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, this is pre dating apps, so it's a lot of like people looking to make friends.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of middle aged men. Looking to have an affair. We, we know <laughs> yes. the type. Uh, no, there were certain type. No, there were certainly people that were looking just to meet other people, to make friends, you know, to fall in yeah. love. Um, there's definitely a social aspect to it, which is fine. You know, I was always someone who was like, I'm here to teach you the art and the work. And there was a fair amount of people like, we just want to make each other laugh. It took, took me a yeah. while to learn that, like, that was okay and to encourage that.
2: And you know what? As someone who, and, and, you know, and I'm thankful for all of those people because I, I share this often with some with, with folks. Is that the curriculum that I still work with now? And it's an endlessly. I'm constantly editing my curriculum, mm-hmm. but that curriculum was originally built. My original re, version one point zero of that uh, curriculum was built in 1998, and it was meant to be you know like some like artistic right speaking to the craft of improv mm-hmm. but then you know you start to realize wait a minute wait 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 you know pause it's okay yeah you've got your aspiring comedians you've got your your ac- aspiring actors but then you also have your hobbyists your socialites and you got to create a curriculum that is inclusive of all of those people and so my curriculum to this day continues to evolve around the communities and, and, and the communities that I'm a part of. And, and to be as inclusive as possible, even if it's like, you know, I want to make sure, I want to make sure that my, my, my student who's prepping to go to New York or Chicago to pursue a comedy career gets as much out of it as my recent divorcee who's trying to make new friends.
0: Right and and so sort and of a,
2: everybody gets a balance oh, between
0: ahead. community building and skill building. Yes,
2: yeah. And 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 that's been like uh I, you know that that's been what 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 kind of keeps me going back to like your original question of like administration and uh actor and all of that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like the administrative part of me that's what keeps me that's what keeps me in the trenches of the administrative side is like, I want as many people as possible doing this, which means that I have to constantly be evolving mm-hmm. to meet the, meet the needs of all of these people. And, and, I, lo- and I like doing that. And, and it personally, like that speaks to a very personal, that in- inclusivity th- thing, mm-hmm. it speaks to a very personal part of me. And I think that is what keeps me in the administrative part of this.
0: Is it fear that no one else would be able to do it the way you want it done? Or do you just genuinely enjoy that part of it? Yeah, I mean, I
2: I, I think both. Like, I, I've i seen so many people move, so many really good people, like, leave communities, like, kind of move on and, and and leave a community behind. And I think part of me is, like, you know, if I don't do it, then that's going to happen. Like, I, I, I'm ready to commit myself to this. Uh, And uh, but I also do get joy out of it. There's something I. I like making uh, this sounds cheesy, so apologies, but I like making people better, Mm -hmm. and whether that is a better comedian or a better person or a better actor like I just like seeing people improve themselves.
0: Well, they're they're taking a class because they want to improve. I'm assuming, right? I mean, there are there's a small percentage that is there to audition for Saturday Night Live, every opportunity they get. That's a small percentage. They don't know they're there because they want to improve, right? Eventually, most of them wake up to that fact. But that that's why they're there. You know, you shouldn't you shouldn't feel bad. You shouldn't feel bad for being high minded in that sense, because that's what everybody wants.
2: Thank you, man. Yeah, no, you're right. And and like the the move to uh, my eventual move to Sarasota even a- evolved that idea because I thought that I had reached the, what I wanted, the, the peak of what I wanted to do in, in 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 how to build a community or how to build a curriculum that is inclusive for a community. Uh, I thought i I thought I hit I thought i mastered it, and then I moved here where I'm dealing with an entirely different community, and I noticed that, oh wait a minute, I'm not as inclusive as I thought <laughs> how was it different so the 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 very first thing is like you know you're moving from uh Boston, which doesn't have uh, as you know a lot of colleges mainly uh mm-hmm. retirement <laughs> it's mostly yeah, old it's, people uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that was the biggest one is like I'm moving from Boston, which is like what is it like eighty colleges and universities in the metro area right very young city
1: mm-hmm.
2: and i'm moving to the opposite end of the spectrum mm. to sarasota which is uh much well, it's a retirement city mm. and that loves theater a retirement city that loves theater and i come in with my my highfalutin curriculum thinking i got this all mastered and i realized mm-hmm. right away oh wait a minute well you're not as inclusive as you thought yeah because uh, it's and, and my curriculum evolved so much my first couple of years here in Sarasota, still maintaining the its heart and its artistic soul, mm-hmm. but now becoming a lot more inclusive.
0: Right. I imagine a lot of scenes that just take place in, in comfortable chairs, poolside lounge chairs. A lot of them.
2: Oh, so much. So much pudding. So much pudding. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We're going to do a scene called rice pudding. Everyone gets some rice pudding.
2: I mean, my favorite thing to ask the audience is, what's your favorite flavor of pudding? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and everybody's got an opinion. To be
2: fair, I love pudding. I know, and right? I love that many of the buffets here
0: have puddings. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I love pudding. It's so good. It's so good. Have you had to like keep your performer... Artistic ambitions, desires, in check in order to balance that stuff out. Like, do you do you feel like you're missing out on indulging that side of yourself in order to, you know, stoke the the flames elsewhere? Man, that's that's a that's a good question. I um, I'll never forget uh, when I, there was going to be
2: a, an attempted retirement from improv. Like, I was like, uh, this is way back. Uh, I mean, I had to be close to 30, maybe. And I was still in Boston. I'm like, oh, I am done. This is my last year performing. I'm going to focus on admit being an administrator uh, for Improv Boston. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, like a couple of things happened that led up to that. Hmm. And I think we all can kind of speak to like being close to those big breaks. And then those big breaks kind of just fall out or don't happen. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly... You mean like a big career get,
0: break, like
2: something's yeah. going to happen.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's like, oh, wow, here's an opportunity to move to LA to do this show and the show gets canceled, right? Mm-hmm.
0: So, is that what happened?
2: That is what happened. I uh, There was uh, something called the, uh, uh, what is it, World Cup Com- or Comedy World? No. Yeah, World, World Cup Club
0: Comedy. comedy. That, yes, yeah. And it was like a whose line is it anyway improv comedy contest show.
2: Exactly, yes, yeah. And I won the Boston competition and then they flew me out to la and then me and my friend from detroit we won the la competition Mm. which meant that we were going to be part of the cast of season two and they told us they're like you know what Uh, yeah season two you guys are now part of the cast and there's all these like you know like uh heavy hitters that are going to be like uh, celebrities that are going to be in the show as well Mm. and so i was like that's it i got it and then right at the same time i got contacted out of chicago like pbs uh was going to do almost like a uh, uh, Big Brother type of improv thing. Wow. Where you start, like, everybody's living in a house and you're putting together a review show for Second City. Oh, I remember uh, that. Yeah,
0: I remember that the, the talks of that happening. And so, like, I got contacted with that. They're like, okay, you, we want you
2: a part of this cast. So all of this is happening. And I'm like, oh, this is it. Like, I'm at that point in my career where this stuff starts happening. And then, of course, it all, you know, goes away. I I, I won like, uh, there was another thing where... My friends and I won a, a TV pilot competition and it got picked up by uh, like NBC put us on a two-year contract, like all these awesome things. Then it all ended. And then I was just like, I think I'm done with improv. Hmm. And uh, I took ended up taking like one of the last things I was doing was a master class with uh, Christina Gausses. Mm-hmm. And so she, she's in Boston teaching this. And then she starts asking me questions. She's like, "So, how long have you been doing improv?" And I think, you know, I was like, "Oh, I've been doing it for like twelve years." But I'm, this is it. Like, I'm done after this is after this weekend. I forget what I said, but it was something like, "I'm finishing up soon." And she told me, she's like, "You're no, you're not. You can't. You're like, you're, she's like, you're too good to not to not keep doing this." Hmm. Which I think I think was the right nudge I needed at that time, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I, it was an outside person, someone not from my community that kind of had this perspective and she gave me some good notes and then that kept me going Mm -hmm. and it also helped me understand that the end all of what i did did not have to center around these big opportunities although i'm very proud of the fact that i was able to get those opportunities yeah i I couldn't hang my entire career on it uh and so well the
0: reality of it is which takes a long time to learn is that those opportunities are infrequent and it, it's, it's akin to getting struck by lightning. You can't count on it, even though we all want it. We all want to get struck by lightning. You're you right. know, we all <laughs> want to be plucked out of obscurity and, you know, and to be given the shot. There's always part of us that wants to do that. Uh, and for some people, it's crushing to not get through it. I think it's a victory to, to still be in it. You know, I, I've, I'm sure you can say the same thing that we know plenty of people that gave up when they realized that it wasn't going to be all, all, you know, I'm trying to find the right metaphor, all rainbows and kittens, all, you know, <laughs> simple taking victory laps all the time. Now that does happen, it's just very, very rare. And I, I think it's much more satisfying to realize it's a lifelong pursuit that you can, you can still keep doing the work. Would I like to have been struck by lightning? Absolutely. At four o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep, what are the thoughts in my head? <laughs> of course, it's about the woulda, coulda, shoulda. But most of my time is, is filled with I'm still doing the work. I'm still figuring yes. it out. I'm still, quote, unquote, an artist. W- one other thing I should say, a side uh-huh. note. Oh, is it another Amtrak JetBlue commercial? <laughs> if you want to get from here to there, try Amtrak <laughs> JetBlue. Now, one single company with one single flying train. <laughs> Amtrak, JetBlue, welcome to the future. My friend Mary Gallagher, good friend, one of my all-time best friends, was the host of World Cup Comedy. I should have said that at the time. That's how I know the show. Oh, oh wow! Yeah, she was oh, cool. the she was the host. So, where are you? Where are you right now? Like, what is it you want to do? What are you hoping to do? What are your goals? What are you aiming for? I know that right before that
2: last commercial, what did that, you were starting to say things that like were inspiring me to think of. Like, I almost have found. So, so I I appreciate what you said at the beginning of this. Of like you said, like you know, I'm a rare combination of all these different things. Yeah. Uh, For me, the building and maintenance of a community, and this is a time back to what you were just saying, it has almost become like an art for me. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: and it's
2: like that has become almost as artistically satisfying Hmm. as teaching a good class or directing a show or having a good show as a performer. There's something and like people will constantly comment on it, even though I don't really see it as a big deal. Like people will talk about like my the way I'm able to manage a variety of different personalities to create a successful community. And Mm -hmm. I do find for some reason I find joy in that. And I think like the next step in my craft of doing that is. I want to be able to teach others how to do that. Mm. How to be like this is this is how you do this. Do you
0: have a formula, either formulated or in your head? Like we need, you know, we need a a crazy person. We need, you know, the (laughs) den mother. We need the scientist. You know, we need our archetypes.
2: (laughs) That's funny. I, uh, I, 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 uh, nothing like that. The closest thing I have to it. Which maybe does cover what you're saying. I do have a uh, policies and procedures document that I have essentially been curating for the last twenty years through my time at Improv Boston and uh, and Florida Studio Theater. That is essentially it's there. There's a, there, there a point in my career where I just started to realize, wow, well, you keep sending these emails out to your management team that. You're essentially telling people, hey, this is how you should manage this, or this is how you should run auditions, or this is a code of conduct, or here are some core values. It got to a point where I I started to collect all those emails into a document, Hmm. and that document is basically like, hey, this is how I think a forward-thinking, inclusive comedy community should operate, and here's... Here's like the low-hanging fruit, what you could do immediately, and here's what you should be aspiring for. If you're a full, you know, fully staffed, multi-million dollar company, this is what it should look like. So it's it's not a to-do, or it's not a uh, a step-by-step guide, but it is something that provides, like if somebody were to pick it up and look at it, they'd be, they'd be able to probably take a, a lot of language from it that would help them get started. Uh, and... You know, and that's another thing, like why I want another very attractive part of that job in New York, Boston was to be able to do this again for a whole new community. Mm. And, and there is something about taking inventory of the community, seeing where everybody's at, and then creating an infrastructure that
0: benefits everybody within. That's awesome. Part of it. Is you've got vision and you can see what the problem is you're able to address it but also you've got Organizational skills. I mean you held on to your notes from the the Burn Manhattan workshop (laughs) 25 30 years ago whenever that was and I don't have those notes I taught the workshop and I don't have the notes How did you get that skill like when did you learn that organizing and and just like keeping everything was important are you just a hoarder
2: okay all right okay no i'm just (laughs) kidding uh i'm trying to get better (laughs) Uh, i am not a hoarder but i do like to hold on to things yeah uh i hoard a lot of digital stuff Hmm. so my friends some of my friends will make fun of me because they'll be like uh, I still have, like, the first emails that I ever sent to them or something mm. like that, some ridiculous stuff like that, right? Yeah, were
0: you like that as a kid? Like, how did you know that things would have importance in the future?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I was like that as a kid. Like, again, like, anything that I feel, I- I- almost like Mary Kondo-ish, like mm-hmm. uh, Marie Kondo, Marie Kondo? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, like, where I'm just like, okay, does this still have, when I look at this, does it still bring me joy, or some sort of value, or le- remind me of a lesson that I learned? Mm-hmm. And if it does, then I'll keep it. And you know, I often will go through my Google Drive and I'll clean it out. I'm like, ah, oh, this means nothing to me anymore. Yeah,
0: or something like that. And so, and I'll, that's I'll mostly clean out like and- family photos go. Right. I'm like, ah, oh, whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> we'll remember when she was five. I don't need the photos. Yes. <laughs> I'm keeping these improv notes.
2: <laughs> that's right. Oh yeah. So many more improv notes than baby pictures. Yeah, uh, but yeah, but the, so that's part of it. Uh, but also, I was also I can't remember if I mentioned this. Uh, uh, I was more of a science guy. I was a physics major, mm-hmm. so like the whole idea of, of like notes and note taking
0: was always a big, uh, big important thing. Right, me. there's a discipline in science. You gotta you gotta record everything because you're gonna have to yeah. show it to people later. Did you think you were gonna be a scientist? Like, was there a goal to get into science? For, for the money, ones. for the women, you know, all the stuff we associate the with fame. science, the fame.
2: What I wanted to do was to be in a reality show where you live with a bunch of other physicists in a house and then they slowly pick you to be the best physicist.
0: Oh my world. God, that would be amazing. No, no. One of you is going <laughs> to cure cancer over the next eight <laughs> weeks. Who's it gonna be? And
2: go. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, no I, I, I did think I was gonna pursue um, I from being a kid from being in 5th grade I think is the earliest memory I have of like just doing science for fun not in, not for school mm-hmm. and so I really thought I was going to pursue a career in science
0: that's so funny I I did too I thought I was going to be a scientist or an engineer but
2: but you know like like you just reminded me like how uh how the your passion and this is a big thing for me, how your passion can, the way it dovetails with your improv career mm-hmm. to start something new. And like for me, science and physics dovetailed very cleanly with what I was learning with improv. And and there was one, oh man, now I don't know if that was in the Bird Manhattan workshop, but there was one thing that dovetailed with me, with physics and improv, like this whole idea of nothing nothing is true until it is observed right mm. which is a big physics thing right mm-hmm. like nothing nothing is certain until you can actually observe it mm-hmm. right and this is like the big thing behind schrodinger's cat mm-hmm. right? is it dead or is it alive you don't know until you open the box
0: and look it's neither it's both
2: it, yeah it's all and that for me is like the perfectly exemplifies like the blank stage of an improv scene like it's it is absolutely nothing until someone observes something and then mm. once that thing is observed then it becomes everything Right, right. and right. Like, Once you say like that, there's a desk or a bed or a tub, or a kitchen, whatever. Once you make that observation, then it becomes everything.
0: Did you spend a lot of time when you started improvising, trying to figure it out from a scientific perspective? Like, what are the three things I need in order to have the proper ingredients? Or, or was it a release from all that? And you're like, um, this is a chance to be free. And not worry about it,
2: yes, and no. Like it was a release, but I think just my natural intuitive nature was trying to understand everything. like I would going back to those Lycos Alta Vista days, mm-hmm. like I would go to the the computer printout room because nobody had their own printers back then, right. Uh, I would go to the uh, uh, library printer room and print out everything I found on the internet about improv hmm. just to read as much as possible. So I was definitely trying to, I was definitely looking for something. Some clues.
0: Yeah. For me, it was uh, a couple of books, Uh, The Compass by Janet Coleman, Something Wonderful Right Away by Jeffrey Sweet. Even the book on John Belushi, Wired. You know, there was enough, there was just enough nuggets in there. Like, I got to find this stuff. And maybe I was just loving Indiana Jones as a kid. I sort of was like, I have to find these (laughs) secret treasures You know, that that all will be revealed. I'll find the golden idol that will teach me how to do this. Yeah. There's an opportunity right now with the end of the pandemic and improv theaters going away and improv schools, like literally closing up shop. There's an opportunity here to reinvent improv communities, improv theaters, the work itself. Do you have a vision for like what the future holds or should hold? and i know you sort of alluded to every town has its own needs so if you need to pick a specific town go ahead
2: well the my vision for any town or just for running an improv theater and good this goes back to kind of the policies and procedures document that i described that i have earlier mm-hmm. what my my goal is always as an artistic director is to create an environment and a, and, a, and a community that is empowered to relentlessly create more stuff. Just mm. put people in a position of creativity and empowerment where whatever idea comes to them, they are free to bring that to fruition. Okay, it, All in the spirit of improvisation.
0: Mm. D- does that run up against the need to bring in an audience or entertainment? What's your, I mean, how do you, where do you stand on the art versus entertainment divide? Which again, (laughs) I mean, I guess this, this relates back to this idea of why I'm fascinated by your nature of you're an administrator. You know, if you're responsible for running a shop, you got to keep the lights on, right? So you need enough new students, enough new audiences coming in to, to pay the bills. But at the same time, you're talking about, Being a creative artist. How do you rectify those two ideas? Do they come in collision a lot? And if there is a collision and a battle, who's going to win? I'll I'll start
2: first by talking about how um, I see like just a single show. So, like, I'm just going to take a show that I'm in, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what kind of show it is. So, it doesn't matter if it's short form, long form, whatever. There is a, in my, mind there is a relationship that is for those 30 minutes 45 minutes 90 minutes whatever there's a relationship at play between every individual in the cast mm-hmm. the the dynamic of that cast whatever that dynamic that cast holds as a unit and the audience and then mm-hmm. that someone could say also the, the space itself the building mm-hmm. right so maybe there's four 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 forces that are all pulling and pushing at the same time. Mm. So that's just for one show. That's my 30 to 90 minute show. So when I'm running a theater, what I'm looking at then is like, okay, what are the needs, the wants, the pains of all of my individual artists, of each one of my individual casts, of my audience and my patrons and my stakeholders? hmm and of the physical space that I'm a part of, mm. and I leave the phys- the physical space for me as an asterisk because you might own it or you might be renting or you it might change every week, mm-hmm. whatever, right? Like that—that's kind of a, a, a more fluid target. Mm-hmm. But those first three are uh, are there, are are, are are will be there in some form or another. And so I look at all of that data, and for me as an administrator, somewhere in the middle of all of that is an idea that unites everything that unites the art and that you brings in the audiences. And it's my job as an artistic director to find that. And Mm -hmm. I look at the, I look at the growth of improv Boston and then I look at the growth of my Florida studio theater program. And it all comes from that. It's me taking inventory of every individual of every ensemble and of my audiences and being like, what, do we all need to step forward? So, I'll give you an example of here at Sarasota. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and so, when I first moved here, I did not change a thing. I'm like, let me just see what you all are doing mm. for like the first six months. Yeah. And the first thing I started to notice was like, okay, you all have, you have we have a lot of good singers here. Mm-hmm. Audience seems to respond very well to just musical games, mm-hmm. short form games. Yeah. And so, that was my first sort of step. Into the of building out the program, I
1: also
0: imagine no one puts their pudding down, like everyone's got pudding,
2: uh, uh, yeah, which makes it hard because everybody's holding on to cups of pudding mm-hmm, while singing, and so while singing, and so it just makes it hard. But you have to once you're able to see through the pudding, that's, <laughs> that's where the magic happens.
0: <laughs> I didn't mean to derail you. Speaking of derailments, this episode is brought to you by Amtrak Amtrak JetBlue. Is it a train? Is it a plane? We're not even sure. But what we do know is, if we go off the rails, we go into the clouds. Amtrak,
1: JetBlue. And that's why
2: I like Amtrak JetBlue is that yeah, you don't derail to the sides; you derail up, and and I love it. And that's why I only take Amtrak
0: JetBlue. What was the so that the idea in in FST, right? You you embrace the musicality of it.
2: And that's what that was for that specific right. community.
0: What about Boston? What was the idea? The central idea there.
2: So the the initial growth, and so again, like I took over, I didn't push a lot. I'm just like, okay, let me see what's happening here, and then you start to take inventory. And the first, and when I say inventory, what I'm talking about is like you're inter, you're meeting with people, mm-hmm. you're finding out what drives people, and. The first thing I noticed in the Boston community is like there was this curiosity and desire for sketch comedy. Hmm. Like everybody was like, they're like, why well, I want to do this? I just don't know how or where. And I'm like, well, then we're doing it. Let's just, yeah. let's get the people we need to teach it to us and let's schedule some shows and let's go. And so the first, here in, in Sarasota, it was musical improv. In Boston, the first growth was into sketch comedy. Hmm. And so. Uh, and that was even before long form took hold in, the, in improv Boston it was sketch comedy, and the the long the long form part was growing as well. Like in my inventory chart, if I could call it that, I could see that there was more and more of a curiosity. But the sketch one was already moving, hmm. and so I'm like, let's do that. And then the community started to grow and grow. And then soon after that, uh, musical improv, and then long form, and then uh, what was the next part? Then we went into stand up. Hmm. Uh, and then it just kept uh, so many other parts. And so that for me is like the future. Is like if I could go in and guide improv houses and comedy houses, is to make them these creative centers that 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 it that adhere to the will of the community.
0: Give me your whole bio. Where did where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago. Yeah, South Side of Chicago. South Side, uh, you're a South Sider. And why did you leave Chicago?
2: To go to school. Uh, to go to Boston. Uh, I might. <laughs> I had uh, very overprotective parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always tell my daughters that, they're, that I'm like I'm so jealous that you get to play softball and soccer as kids because I could never do that. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, but so that so I say because that they were because afraid you would I, get hurt. Yeah, they were afraid of me getting hurt, me getting lost on the way home, Mm -hmm. like so many different things. Wow. And so that's why I went to school in Boston because I'm like, okay, here's an opportunity to kind of just spread my wings. So I'm going to take it. And that's where I learned. And I talk about this on other forums as well. And I, I often think it's a sad fact to learn that. Uh, You know, even though I grew up like probably less than five hours from Second City, I had no idea that I was in the mecca of improv until I left Chicago.
0: That's insane. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to be too (laughs) flabbergasted by this fact. Because I I grew up in Philadelphia and I know cheesesteaks and pretzels. I figure if you grew up in Chicago, you know police brutality and improv. (laughs)
2: I, yeah, I mean, that's it. It's kind of you're, you're you're I and I only unfortunately got one of the two, right? And so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so yeah, I, I when I went to Boston, uh, that's what I ended up learning about all the great things back home. And, um, so yeah,
0: I, do, I, do I, you ever I, feel like you want to go to Chicago and and you know, like be part of the community, start something there?
2: Early, when was this like 2000 three, four, a couple of years after, uh, a few years after my Bird Manhattan experience, I spent a summer in Chicago. Okay. So this was back, and, and I, and... Uh, Did you tell your parents you, you
0: were there, or you just sort of hauled I, no, up and didn't I, let them know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's so funny, like, uh, I stayed with them in that, in that during uh, that those few months, but they were still overprotective. And at this point, I was now...
0: 26 27 yeah.
2: or something yeah they're and like wear
0: a helmet You're like i'm just going to do some improv
2: like i would be arriving home at like three in the morning and my mother would be
0: awake she was <gasps> like i couldn't sleep until you got home oh. and i'm like mom
2: wow <laughs> yeah
0: yeah so i'm just gonna let that sit because that's heavy
2: <laughs> but yeah man i ended up uh i did that in those few months and that was a good sort of a good, it was like a good soak, you know, yeah. just sort of this, yeah, like getting, being able to stay in that. And I'll never forget, like, uh, you know, uh, you know, Jason Chen inviting me to join like a Herald team at, at IO. Mm. And, and I was tempted, man. I was just like, this, I could stay, yeah, I could, I could stay, but your and mother would never sleep again, so she would not, exactly. And uh, I didn't want to put my mother through that, so I was like, Jason, I'm sorry wow but i can't put my mother through this <laughs>
1: wow
0: um do do you do you regret that at all do you like do you feel like I'm, do you ever think back on like oh if i had gone on that fork or this fork mm. no i'm not saying you should uh, or shouldn't i don't think it's a healthy way to live but it's right. also a, it's also a way to learn Where well, you know next time you face a fork you might have some information to make a choice right yeah
2: i uh, i don't i do think that i was more tempted to continue to push and us uh, uh, my and lead my community in boston mm-hmm. and so because of that i feel like i made the right choice uh staying staying with my, my boston community was important i can't regret like all the opportunities uh or that that staying in Boston then opened up like, I mean, all the travel stuff that I've had a chance to do, et cetera.
0: Right.
1: Yeah.
0: So. I mean, it's like, life is like improv. You, you, the right choice is the choice you commit to. Yeah. If you go, yeah. if you go half in, it's, 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 not gonna, it's not gonna land, but if you go all in, it's gonna land. Yeah. What was your first exposure to comedy, theater, art, as a kid, like what were you into? And then when did you know that like, it was something you could pursue?
2: Um so there's like some yeah you know, I was just thinking about this the other I was thinking about part of this answer the other day. The uh so there's uh a, a lot of Mexican TV shows mm-hmm. that I um that I grew up with it was kind mm-hmm. of like my first exposure to to sketch comedy like this like really silly like uh,
0: Sabedo Gigante con Don Francisco <laughs> like <laughs>
2: Uh, there's some of he got there, yeah. Uh, there's, there's, a, uh, uh, there's, um, there's like, oh my god, uh, El Chavo del Ocho was a big like kind of uh, El Chavo del Ocho was like a Mexican sitcom mm. that that used to come out, but it was like very it was like adults playing kids, and that, well, <laughs> then
0: yeah, and- yeah. I've not seen that show, but I've seen it referenced in other shows.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah, it gets referenced often. So, yeah. like, that probably was my first exposure to to popular comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I don't know if you remember the comedian Robert Townsend. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, Hol-
0: Hollywood Shuffle.
2: Hollywood Shuffle, yeah. And, like, I used to watch him and he used to, like, be in a few different things. And I remember him hosting, like, a show uh like a stand-up show or something and I, I and i forget what it was on whatever cable channel we had at at the time uh and i would just watch that stand-up show that he was hosting mm-hmm. so many times hmm. uh and it was at hbo yeah i, I remember now because i remember yeah was, on, like, i think logo. it was just called
0: like robert townsend and friends or something
2: S- something like that yeah. yeah and i would just watch that constantly and he was a bit
0: of... of a perform like um a like an entertainer. He saw the work as like his job was to have everybody have a good time. And he he also like dabbled in music and, you know, full, he was a full showbiz throwback type performer.
2: Yeah. And I just, maybe, maybe that's kind of what I enjoyed also is just that he, he was that he was like this consummate professional and it was here. why I remember watching that show. And then the memory that I was reflecting on the other day was Dana Carvey and that, I was thinking about Dana Carvey because I saw my TV and I'm like, oh, yeah, that generation of SNL was very formative Mm -hmm. for me because I was still in high school and I was starting to like learn a little bit more about the idea of sketches and all of that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was that was the very formative. Those those acts were very formative for me as a comedian.
0: Did you see anyone in particular that you thought, oh, that's me that I could be that I would say, you know, for me, it was like I kind of identified with Woody Allen like, internally, I felt awkward. But externally, people thought I resembled Billy Crystal. And I think it's just because of my hair. Huh. And so just having those sort of two images, I was like, oh, I I, I can fit in that world. I, I do
2: think that I was very much, and I mentioned uh, Dana Carvey mm-hmm. earlier, I do think that, like, Mike Myers was kind of like, mm. and I, I don't know if I saw myself as Mike Myers, but I definitely, like, it gave me something that sort of model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just like, oh, wow, this, this guy. Is it that is... he could
0: play a lot of different
2: characters or? I think that's my, I, I feel like that's what it was.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, but I, I remember being very impressed by his work and it kind of just sort of stood out to me.
0: Mm-hmm. When it comes to improv, what was the first improv show that you saw? Do you remember like the first time you actually saw a live improv show?
2: It was in college. It was a show called My Mother's Flea Bag. And because of the time, because of when I saw it, I'm pretty sure Amy Poehler was in it because she was a senior when I was a freshman. Mm. So so it was my freshman year. uh, And that show was the first time that I saw improv. And this was back when improv shows, I mean, I remember it being like three hours long or something ridiculous like that. And it was just so, good. and I, I, it's so good. And it—that's it, where I. That was my first exposure to improv.
0: And did you know right then? You're like, I'm gonna do that, or what, Or do you have to have multiple exposures?
2: I could still remember the show, but I could also remember the feeling of not knowing what I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like, like not knowing the. No, I knew nothing of what was behind the curtain. Mm. I just knew, like, this is really funny. Yeah and and it's impressive and having no idea that it was being made pro, i mean i probably had it i don't even know like i don't think i knew it was being made up on the no spot. i
0: know even people that yeah. like go see improv or know improv like i talk to audiences after and like well when did you come up with that bit and i'm like you know you're at an improv show they're like yeah yeah i know but when did you come up with that bit <laughs> it's like it's an imp do you not know what i'm talking about when i say <laughs> it was improvised um Certainly so but you know then there's also the audience that does get it when did you think you became the audience that got it
2: after I auditioned like the next spring of that show after that show was like the fall of my freshman year Mm -hmm. then like that spring I wanted to audition for the shows the the scripted theater shows Mm -hmm. and I totally missed all the auditions and the only thing that was still auditioning was an improv show Mm. and and again this is still me not knowing what that means. I auditioned for it and I got in and this wasn't the same group that that Amy was in. This was a different group. But I I got in and then I started to understand like oh this is what was that's what was happening. I get it now. And then that's of course I think what I got the bug that we all feel. Mm. And that and that's what I knew like I want to keep doing this. I'm getting the high. I want I'm feeling good doing this thing, and I want to keep doing this.
1: Mm.
0: How many how many groups were there at Boston College at that time? Back
2: then, there were two improv groups and one sketch group. That's that's kind of a lot for that time. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, uh, and now I mean now there are even more, but yeah, for back then it was. And then one of them, of course, the group that Amy was in, my mother's flea bag, of course, was elite level. I mean, probably nationwide elite level. Mm-hmm. And the group that I was in was kind of like the leftovers.
1: Right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was enough to really get me. I mean, it, it, it gave me enough of the taste that I wanted, to keep, I wanted to keep doing it.
0: All right. This is a two-parter. And this is top improv moments. Top improv moment you've witnessed. And you can define that however you want. And then top improv moment you've been a part of.
2: I I wish I could share the details of of the, the show. Uh, it was a an Armando. It was an Io like a, you know how they do the Monday night Armando shows at Io or they did.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and and I always regret not remembering the details of the scene. But what I do remember was this: is that th- these are some of the top improvisers in Chicago. That are doing the Armando uh, uh, experience. And they're doing a scene that is not going well. And you could just tell it's not hitting, it's not laughing. I do, but I remember like some real stars out up there. Like I remember like, like Miles Stroth up mm. there, Jason Chin, like some really big names were up there. Mm-hmm. But the scene was not going well. And the reason why this scene sticks with me is because. They were so patient with that scene, like mm. they were just, and and you know what I'm saying, it didn't go well, but that might have been young Will improviser thinking it was not going well because mm-hmm. they, they there just weren't any laughs. Mm-hmm. But I'll never forget, like they stuck with the scene, they stuck with the scene, and they were patient with the scene, and then at the very end, just tied it all together and put a button on it that just sealed the deal and gave us a funny ending, and. And then the audience instantly forgot the four and a half minutes leading up to these last thirty seconds because mm-hmm. it was just such a well executed and you could just tell I remember just watching it and be like everybody is listening so closely and you're not giving up on this scene. you're not gonna mercy kill this scene mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna be patient with it and nurture it and take care of it and then boom, they brought it in at the end, and that for me it just taught me so much about listening and nurturing and supporting one another and to, to this day I tell my casts I, I tell and my students it's in my curriculum I'm like I'm like um I, I, I try to train my students not to ever mercy kill a scene mm. like because sometimes you know when I go when we learn when they learn editing you know and'll I'll open up by asking why would you edit a scene almost every single class somebody will say because it's going bad because it's going poorly mm. right and i I try to train my actors not to think that way I'm like there's something if we listen closely, and if we are in a supportive spirit, we will find something that that could be that is worth salvaging, and then flourishing into something amazing, which is what that scene taught me.
0: That's really hard for some people to really understand. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of improv cliches about it that it's it's there, it's already there. It's in your partner's Mm -hmm. eyes is one of those Mm -hmm. cliches, right? You don't have to invent, just heighten and explore what's already there. Do you have an exercise or series of exercises that help people clue into that?
2: We do. Um, oh, oh, like, uh, like the, the idea of like it, it's already there. Yeah,
0: yeah. Like, how? I guess the real question is, how do you get people to get out of their heads and just into a place of discovery? Especially because you know, if you talk about. It's a community. We're in a class. We have other agendas attached with why we're there. We tend to be very self-conscious when we're in a class and there's a certain Mm -hmm. expectation of performance and comedy and things like that. How do you get people out of their heads and away from thinking about, you know, what's attached to the scene? Is it funny? Is it not funny? And just be there.
2: There's one exercise I love doing uh, that's called... um, I've, I've... Done a variation on this since I first learned it, but it's it's called accusation and accept, mm. and it's very simply. You start a scene with two uh, two actors, and and I teach it early on. This is like towards the end of my level one class, mm-hmm. so like week six, and you know people are starting to get comfortable on stage, and you know a lot of like very supportive listening and all that, and then I get I, we uh, like in this week six I start talking about I'm, I'm like you know sometimes the scene is not going to go where you wanted it to go or you thought it would go or you intended for it to go and we're going to play a little bit with that right now and so with this game your scene partner and and you really got to be careful of how you set this up cuz you don't want it to get nasty but you you I, I like your scene partner is going to start by accusing your character of some sort of like unfavorable characteristic mm. Like you're always picking your nose, you smell, uh, you know, what uh, your, um, uh, you know, why do you always fail at this thing or whatever? Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of the exercise is that your, your character is being endowed with a negative attribute. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I try to remind everybody, I'm like, don't take, don't take this personally, these are all, it's just care it's characters. Mm -hmm. But the whole, the whole idea is that the moment that you're, you're endowed with this negative attribute. I want you to own it. Mm. I want you to be like, yeah, I do smell, right? Or, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I don't. Uh, you're right. I do burp loudly. Or, you're right. I don't wash my clothes. Or whatever, right? Yes. Yeah. You, you, you embrace whatever was just given to you, and then you turn it around into a gift. And you're like, yeah, I don't do this, and here's why. Because. And then you support it in however way you want, and then and then the other person will kind of listen to you, and then build off of that. Mm. But the, the the thing, the whole what I'm trying to do there in this exercise is detach your ego from the ego of the character. Mm-hmm. Like just release yourself, release uh, release the actor's ego from the ego of the character. Because a lot of times I see actors attach their ego to the character. Mm-hmm. And, and and just take everything too personally or get too defensive or start to block or start to run away. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, let your character, let, let let your actor's ego, let it let it rest, put it to the side, right? Let your character embrace whatever was just given and then just turn it into a gift. And it ends up being a very liberating class almost for all of my students. Mm-hmm. They end up just being like, being like wow, like, okay, that – I, I, it helps them not take things, not get caught in their own heads, right? Not allow themselves to get in their own way.
0: Right. Right. And, and maybe realize they don't have to be the hero of every scene, not to Mm -hmm. say that having a negative attribute to your character makes you the villain. But, Mm -hmm. um, I like to do a variation on that, a similar one where you have, it's a three person scene, uh, where the third person enters late and the first part of the scene is, is the other two talking about the person who's about to enter and they describe as many psychological, physiological, you know, emotional, historical attributes of the character and you have to take them all on. And I have them, you know, backstage is just off stage where we can see them. So we see them embody it physically before they come out. And a lot of students comment like that's their favorite exercise we do. And I think it has to do with that, um, they're relieved of choice they're yep. told what to do and they just and i the light bulb does go off i'm like oh i don't have to invent everything in every scene
2: oh uh, it's uh, that's so great
0: um i we didn't get to the second part of the two part question this is part 2 brought to you by amtrak jetblue if you want to get somewhere make us one of your top 3 choices <laughs> um <laughs> What, what, what was, what's a top improv moment for you as a performer? And do you, I mean, you know, for me, I've, I've scaled back doing a lot of the teaching and, you know, I, I've, I, the only time I ran my own shop was when I was in Hawaii for six months. That was not very long. I've never really pursued that. Yes, it would be a dream to run, to run a theater. Um, I, I would love to run one into the ground, quite frankly. If, if the opportunity is there. Amtrak <laughs> JetBlue will run you into the ground. <laughs> um, You know, but I, yeah, I just, I just, you know, I love the, I, I forgot the first part of my question. I love the performing part of it, you know what I mean? And the. Those performance moments, the moments where that magic happened is the most important thing for me. Is that still important to you to have great improv moments as an improviser or is the community building more important?
2: Oh, no, no. Yeah, you're right. I mean, like the the, those magic moments as a as a performer on stage give me those it it gives it, it, it energizes me as an improviser. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it it reminds you of why not only I do this, but why I teach it mm-hmm. and it's even better going back to the community part It's even better when members of my community witness it and they see it and mm. they're like, "Oh wow, you could do this also this thing that you're asking us to do. I saw you do it mm-hmm. so it's it's not just this idea or concept it's something that can be done mm-hmm. so uh, so to tie it back to the community, I think that's why it's also important, but it also yeah it uh it's so it feeds my my soul I don't I don't need it I think in the past I might have needed those moments for my ego mm-hmm. I don't really need that anymore I but uh, I just it, it, it but it's so it feels great to just to execute the craft oh my god I mean, it's, it's, addictive.
0: Like, it's addictive it's addictive
2: yeah man it's I mean it's like uh, I, I often use sports to describe improv but I mean it's like That that no rim three
0: pointer. It's like just. I know exactly what you're talking about. Please explain to the audience what a no rim. (laughs) Not me, because I know Will. But for the audience, a no rim three pointer is a basketball shot from far away
2: from far away that goes into the hoop without even touching the rim right it's got doesn't hit the metal
0: part it goes right in and you
2: hear the snapping of the neck Mm -hmm. favorite part i know it well
0: i know it well Uh,
2: i mean yeah you do you do you must do it all the time
0: all the time i'm always out (laughs) shooting the hoops as we (laughs) like to say oh man so we didn't answer the question A top improv moment for you it could be a, a recent one you're like oh this is the last time i had a great improv show or your all-time top moment
2: yeah I, there i do have one and friends who listen know that i i refer to this one a lot and it's one of the uh, it sucks because it's not recorded mm. anywhere but it, we, it was part of the Del close marathon where we were there as improv boston and you know how they give you your your tight thirty or whatever mm-hmm. thirty minutes to do, yep. to do your thing, mm-hmm. uh, and we did a set that at the twenty-five minute mark, at the twenty-five minute mark, it hit this moment of, and you know, like in the in the in the fast style of play that we that we do that you and I have done together, mm-hmm. it, it it hit this crescendo where, like six to seven scenes, all tied up in sequence. It was mm. like it was like scene 1 close, scene 2 close, quick edit 3, quick edit scene 4 closes, quick edit scene 5 wraps up and it was just like da 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 and it just built to the point where like you could feel like the audience gasp because mm. it was it was done so quickly and so cleanly that they gasped and then all just stood up and gave us a standing ovation. Oh yeah. With 5 minutes left on the clock. And, and then you just stood there for five minutes. I mean, I, I, we, we look at each other like, what the <laughs> hell do we do now?
0: Oh, that's and
2: hilarious. I, I, we should have stood there. We just ended up walking. We like bowed and walked off yeah, the stage. Take like, it. There's nothing else to do. Take it. Start another <laughs> set.
0: What are you going <laughs> to do? That's so awesome. And, and of all places to do it. What time was your slot? Do you remember? Oh, man. We, it was a great slot. It was like uh, It was
2: like Saturday night at... 6 p.m. or something Oh, that's like pretty that. good.
0: That's pretty good. Yeah. I remember doing a slot at, uh, it was like a Sunday at 11 or something in the morning. And just like, oh my God, this is going to be the hardest show in my life. The few people that are there stayed up all night and they're exhausted. No one's. Yeah. they're all at brunch. I don't even remember how we did. It was with um, Gotham, Gotham City Improv, which I don't even know is around anymore but I just remember that feeling of like, oh God, this is going to be work. Does it ever, <laughs> does, does, the, does it ever feel like work for you on, on either side as an improviser or as an administrator? And it, and when it does, do you have any ways to like get out there of that? There are
2: still moments where, where uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are times that I get that work feeling where you walk into a space and no one seems to be interested mm-hmm. in what you're going to say or sometimes, a space, and this is on the administrative side, like a space just has not been set up for your success. Mm-hmm. Like the the person that hired you just has no concept of how to set up a room. Yeah. And so they put you in a place where there's you're not going to be seen. They forgot to set up microphone and speakers. And you're like, okay, here we go. We're in 45 minutes of yelling into nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh so it's happened, uh, definitely. And I've learned from that. I'm like, okay, if they cannot meet certain things just don't do the show it's better oh, to wow.
1: not
2: lose out uh, it's better to lose out than and, and and then to do a poor quality show
0: right is that is that one thing that drives you to like be in charge so you can control everything and make sure it's done right
2: i am a control freak
1: yeah
0: no no i'm just,
2: i'm not a control freak but yeah i uh i do have an idea of how things can be done better Mm -hmm. and i think that's why i looked or sought positions of leadership Mm -hmm. uh i don't like to the thing is i don't like to impose my ideas and sometimes people will tell me that instead uh and i don't know if this i hope it doesn't sound like i'm manipulative but i do like to work with others to come like to to a a solution that works for everyone,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Like if you and I are working together, I'm gonna try to help you discover the idea. Like, and there are times, like if I'm mentoring somebody, I know what the right answer is, but I'm not gonna tell you outright. I'm just gonna, I, want, I wanna try to guide you to discover it, because mm-hmm. then, then it becomes that much more powerful if you figure it out.
0: That's, uh, that's a trait of a good leader. Oh, thank you. Speaking of good leaders, hey. Amtrak JetBlue. Leading the way in hybrid railroad aircraft. We're not even sure if it's a train or a plane. You decide. Amtrak. JetBlue. Got to keep the money rolling in. You know, I got to make our sponsor uh, happy. We get some questions in the, in the mail
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, occasionally. Uh, one question uh, we had, I've had a few people answer, is um, ab- about f- scenes that flatline. How do you recognize when a scene is flatlining and what do you do to get out of it?
2: If I find myself now looking at my partner and looking outside at the environment, then I'm like, okay, uh, wh- why am I looking for the scene out here? And mm. it's not about the laughs, really, but it's it's about like, why am I not feeling anything towards my mm. my partner right now? Like that emotional aspect is so important to me, mm-hmm. and when I don't feel that, when I and I can't remember who gave me this note, but it stuck with me, and I still find it as effective as ever. Uh, but the note they gave me was, when all else fails, fall in love.
1: Mm.
0: And that's what I do. That's good. I, I, I always say, when in doubt, seduce.
1: Yeah. Which is a little exactly. darker. It, it is. <laughs> but it's a similar idea.
2: Is, you say that all the time, even not in improv scenes.
0: Yeah, I do it all the time. When in doubt, seduce. <laughs> when, you're, when you're on your way from Florida to Boston, on the Amtrak JetBlue. Air train. Is it called the air train? Is that what it's called?
2: It is called the air train.
0: When you're on the <laughs> air train, look to the person to your left and get on it.
2: Amtrak JetBlue. But yes, I. Uh, so that's like, and I'll have a scene that's not going well. Yeah. And and, and uh, what I end up doing is, I'll just. Be, and it's not like falling in love with the person, but you can just fall in love with something they're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I really... You know, I, I'm sorry I didn't mention this earlier, but I, I really enjoy the way that I really love the way that you fold that laundry. Mm. I mean, it's just so efficient. And yeah, yeah or what, you know, like it's something along those lines. And then it gives you something to uh, something emotionally to focus on.
0: Right. Right. And, and in your partner, right, to something inside yeah. your partner. I like that tip. Um, do you have a go to move? As an improviser, you know, maybe as a way to start a scene. My move is was often to install cable, <laughs> cable television, and then see where it goes. Do you have something I, like that?
2: Um, I like making sandwiches.
0: Oh, that's good.
2: I really, I don't know why, like, immediately I start, like, spreading mayonnaise on pieces of bread. That's good.
0: I Yeah, I wonder what that says. Not to get too Freudian, but I love getting Freudian. <laughs> the idea of a sandwich, food... Family, community—we're all going to come together and eat. Whereas, for yeah. my choice of installing cable, it's something mechanical, <laughs> leading to some, some passive activity, just sitting on the couch eating your pudding, <laughs> watching the weather channel all hours mm-hmm. of the day. Interesting. Interesting. So you have you
2: have been to Sarasota now? <laughs> Does it really sounds like you've been to Sarasota. Sarasota
0: is a part. Is is in my mind. It's it's part of my. It is a way
2: of life more than anything.
0: Yeah. How did you get to Sarasota? I used to uh, come to the
2: Sarasota Improv Festival, which is an amazing festival. So by me inviting you,
0: you might eventually end up in Sarasota. Oh, my God. If I could convince the family to enjoy, you know, a January of 70 degree weather, we might all move down there. (laughs) Might be a tough sell. They really like the cold winters up here. Do they really? I couldn't, I couldn't get my family to move to Hawaii. And that's paradise. I don't know. Maybe maybe someday, especially now that things are opening up again. How do you feel about things opening up? You know, we're starting to see some theaters here. The Pit has just announced they're doing shows. And the asylum has been up and running for quite some time. Are you excited to get back on the boards, as they say?
2: It's, it's going to be a little scary. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not talking about just like the COVID part of it, but just like kind of getting back. Uh, like, it's the the one thing about the, the calm, uh, the, you know, not the call. I don't even know, like the last year of like not having, we've all been doing our virtual, many of us have been doing our virtual things. Yeah. Right. But I do feel like it's going to be back to business yeah. in both the good and the bad
0: way. Yeah. Right. I was saying it's to like, my wife last night, I was like, there's part of me and she was looking at me like it was a crazy person, but that's something I'm used to. <laughs> I was saying that like part of me is very sad that this is over because I feel like not only was this a you know once in a lifetime global event, so it's like living through history, but also you know it was an opportunity for you know contemplation and and reset and and maybe thinking about what I want to do. I mean one thing, I feel like I didn't get enough done. I know it's probably not the best you know way to to look at it that I should have been getting a lot done because really my job was just to survive but I feel like, you know, I, I wish I had done more. I wish I had uh, accomplished more in this time. You know, like finally writing a book or a, a play, you know, or something of real substantive value. You know, I, I, I'll tell you what I did get done. I, I did a lot of staring off into the middle distance with a blank look on my face. Did, did a lot of that. Got a lot of that done. <laughs> Anyway, we'll uh, hope to see you up here pretty soon. Well,
2: yeah, I mean, I'll go, uh, but I'm in the middle of, uh, of taping my new, uh, filming my new uh, Hulu special, and uh, well, oh, no, oh, I'm sorry, and my new movie on Amazon.
0: Oh, great! I'm glad I'm not alone. <laughs> Where can people find you if people want to look you up?
2: Will-Luera.com, or even simpler, wluera.com.
0: Wow, you got your own com. It's the fastest
2: way to make Amtrak JetBlue reservations.
0: <laughs> Willowera.com. If you want to travel from Florida to Boston in a vehicle that is basically a train with some wings taped to it, then Amtrak JetBlue. Willowera.com. Thanks for coming on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. Always a pleasure to spend time with you.
2: Hey, man. It is like an honor. I said it at, the, at some point in this thing, but... You know, you were part of the group that made a dent and, and, and it's been like the fact that we reconnected, yeah. you know, and, and continue to connect is awesome. It's and awesome. I, I thank you. Thank you so much for everything you did for my career.
0: Um, of course. And I've said it on the podcast many times when I saw Big Bang um, in Barcelona, Spain, It was like a shot in the veins in many ways. Just seeing people do the kind of work I love at a level that I only imagined was so inspiring and exciting to just, you know, as an artist watching other artists, but to also know that like the seed was in the work I had started to do and there was a direct connection between the work I was doing and the work that I saw on stage, like put wind in my sails in a huge way. That was five years ago and I still feel it like you really figured something out you really put your stamp on the work and uh i'm glad for it
2: thank you man thank you
0: yeah thanks for coming on the podcast thank you there you have it that was my chat with will luera be sure to check out his website If you're enjoying this podcast, you can support it directly on our page on anchor.fm. If you have a question, concern, comment, fashion advice, we are centraliaimprovisation at gmail.com. Be sure to check us out on the Instagrams, the Facebooks, and the Twitters. Please like, subscribe, and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast.